Um, glad you guys came. Uh, I want this to be, I, I figured we've got a little bit of time together and I don't have like an hour and a half worth of uh, stuff to, to say. In fact, I, not even close. Um, but I was hoping that maybe I could say a few things and, and, and maybe I, I figured we'd be a small, tight-knit group and maybe we could just have a, a discussion. Maybe I could start a few fires and throw some embers on and, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. So um, um, let me pray. And then I want to kind of hear quickly where everybody's from. Come on in. I want to hear where everybody's from. So, uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity to hang. And, and I pray that today, as I prayed earlier, that, that this would just be a fruitful time that we'd engage in, in um, relationships that would grow deeper and that we could walk away from this day uh, really, really thankful that we came. And so guide us and lead us. Um, we, we don't have all the answers, but we thank you that we have a Savior who loves us uh, in the midst of our messes and and as we talk about what it means to cultivate a culture of grace, um, uh, there's no expert on that but you. And so, so we trust you to guide us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, say hi to each other real quick and find out where we're from and stuff. So can we start with you? And we'll kind of just move. We'll start on this side and kind of move, move across. Uh, I'm Katie Simmons, and I'm from Roner Park, and I go to Soma Church Community. Cool. Roner Park. That's awesome. Paul Ortlinghouse. Uh, Soma Church Community in Santa Rosa. Cool. That's awesome. Oh, uh, Joe and Joy, we're, we're also from Soma. 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 Cool. Santa Rosa. Yeah, it's awesome. Cool. I'm sorry, what was your name, Joy? Yeah. Okay, Joy. 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 Okay, okay, cool. I'm Will Watson, uh, and I'm with Vintage Grace and Elvira Hills. Okay, cool. That's awesome. So you hear you hear Drew speak enough. You're, you're, yeah, you're good. <laughs> I'm going to be with him next week, so I was like, yeah. I'm John from porch in san francisco cool that's awesome michael yeah Grace. good good to see yeah no i'm sorry yeah go ahead michael michael Grace. jake same cool that's awesome i met um who's your tech director guy the mustache zach yeah 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 cool guy yeah yeah cool i know yeah we were talking about travis's old youth pastor you know was was he was like my vintage of youth of youth ministry back in back in the day here so Cool. Anything back That's, California just recently moved to um, Paradise, and I'm serving with um, Crisis Response. Cool. So, yeah. Thank you so much for for doing that, man. I'm from Paradise. Get out. Oh, parents, my parents' house were there. Uh, Jason, it's not your turn. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm <not laughs> just kidding. Go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go. So sorry. It's a weird world. I feel I already feel comfortable enough to joke with this guy. Go. It's a weird world where everyone knows where paradise is from. Yeah. No hey. one knows where. I'm yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, from Shingle Springs Discovery Hills Church. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, most of my life, yeah. Yeah. My whole family. Oh, really? Like from paradise, but much of my family moved there. Like, yeah, I moved there when I was like seven or eight. Yeah. So I have, uh, just have to say, so Michael Dacey, man, I met him when I first came here as a youth pastor in 2005. Uh, great dude, man. Um, in fact, in this student center over here, we had a lot of great nights together over the years and him leading worship. And, uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> so anyway, but God's using him to do some awesome things. His brother also served on staff for a couple years with us um, and really helped us out during the pandemic with just bringing our online presence to a new level. And uh, so, yeah, so the Dacey family has his fingerprints all over the valley here. So anyway, um, well, so, man, when, when Neil, you know, when we were talking about topics and things that might be helpful for um, for gathering together today, um, you know, I I just felt like, given all the things we've been through and reflecting on the last couple of years in particular, but the, the last many years serving on staff here at Valley first as a youth pastor and these last 12, 12 and a half years as a, as a lead pastor, I, I really, um, I really have, have do a lot of reflecting on what it means to cultivate a culture of grace in a, in a world that's so divided. And, um, and I was just talking to Drew actually a little sidebar conversation before we started today. And like even wrestling through as a, as a, as a pastor, as a leader with my own, you know, 
obviously we have opinions about what's going on politically that are personal and we might think we're, we're right about our opinions and, and those kind of things. But how do we lead and navigate in a culture of grace that's welcoming uh, and that doesn't get in the way of the gospel? And, and I'm not here by any means as an expert um, in that um, because I've made mistakes in that and I continue to try to learn from mistakes and things that I've said or, or, you know, ways that I've handled things. Um, but I, I religious fervor in my opinion is, is probably at an all time high in my generation. And I don't say that as a good, I don't, that's not a positive thing. Um, you know, there, there there's passionate commitment, uh, to things that maybe, you know, that are, that are moralistic, that are formulaic, that are political, that are, um, but they may have nothing to do with Christianity or discipleship, right? And so examples from the secular world, you know, we, we see the divide, obviously, at the, at the poles of, you know, sort of on one end, sort of wokeism, cancel culture, those kinds of things. And then on the other end, sort of, you know, Trumpism, uh, maybe in some sense, I, by the way, I'm, I'm a patriotic guy. My son's in the military, but when I say this, I don't mean anything negative, but sort of an unhealthy nationalism that is detached from a king to, kingdom mindedness is if, 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 you with me, you know, on that. And so we've got these sort of, how do we bring people together around the gospel and cult, cultivate a culture of grace that is where it's not only safe for people to come, but um, and gather and be a part of a community, but also can serve right alongside of one another and not villainize one another because they see the world through a you know a different lens. And so, uh, in in certain ways, you know, how do we keep the lens the thing, uh, which is obviously Jesus and His kingdom? So, um, when I came here twelve years ago, um, or, or sixteen years ago, but stepped into my lead role as 12, 12 years ago, um, Valley's always been a, a gracious church in my understanding. I mean, Raleigh was one of the reasons I came on staff here, is I had admired Raleigh for years, and when he reached out to me and said, "Hey, we're looking for a youth pastor. Are you interested?" Um, you know, I I, I couldn't say I. I I didn't know if I was ready to leave my previous ministry because there were a lot of things going on. But in my heart of hearts, it was like, yes, where do I sign up? Um, because I love Raleigh and I knew that the kind of leader he was. Um, so, so we were, we've always been a gracious church in the sense that we've, we've, we, I'm not aware that we've ever been like a rigid legalistic church in terms of dress codes and super, you know, ardent traditions and things like that. Michael's even been, was a part of Valley before I grew up. So he kind of grew up in this church. Um, but when I came, you know, I really, I really, God had been doing some things in my own life. Um, I, I'd been, I'd been raised in, in certain expressions of legalism, like we all, many of us have. And, um, and God had just been doing such an amazing work of understanding grace and, and the new covenant and identity in Christ and um, and these things in my personal life. And as I started to see them bear fruit in my personal life and started to see my own self becoming free from things that once dominated my thinking and my behaviors and, um, and this gospel really working in my life, man, you, you know, you, you want to share that with others and figure out how do I impart this to students? And so Michael and his generation was probably victim of me trying to figure this out, uh, you know, and experiment on these kids. Like, you know, what does it mean to live a grace-based life? And, um, and so whether we're talking about secular or sacred sinners, saints, unredeemed, redeemed, all of us deal with an inner Pharisee, right? Um, we might refer to it as the flesh. Um, it's been characterized. The flesh has been characterized in many different Brendan Manning, the late Brendan Manning. He, in his book, Abba's child, he called, he referred to the flesh as the imposter. Um, the new international version, uh, translates, uh, I think it's an unfortunate translation, but they, they've recently corrected it, but new international version has translated the flesh, the sinful nature. Um, and so we talk about the flesh in a lot of different ways, but for our purposes today, and I'm not trying to get into a theological debate, but I want you to understand how I'm using the word flesh. Um, for our purposes today, a working definition of the flesh would be that old pattern of uh, that old network, right? Of thinking patterns, um, coping mechanisms, survival strategies, those, those ways in which we used to think and behave when we trained ourselves to live independently from Christ, right? And so that's what I see as the flesh. I don't see it as a sinful nature. I think our old man was crucified with Christ and, and raised to new life. And so I take that at face value and I believe that. But we all have the flesh, right? And, and the flesh is not us, but it's with us. And there's a Pharisee 
um, in, inside of all of us that we, um, we struggle with. And the most ardent, Jesus-loving, Christ-following Christian struggles with this. And so how does the flesh operate? Um, I, I look at it as there's two broad categories of the flesh. There's, there's rebellious flesh, which is the stuff that as pastors and Christian leaders, we spend 95% of our time being asked to deal with, right? So this is when somebody has an affair and you're called in to do triage and counseling and help them figure that out. Or someone is caught doing, you know, some, some act of dishonesty or immorality or whatever, right? That, that's the, the brand or the flavor of flesh that most of us are called to sort of address, right? In, in, as Christian leaders. And, um, Again, rebellious flesh is the obvious stuff, but then there's there's religious flesh, which is just as much, if not more, damaging and and probably more insidious than rebellious flesh. Because re- rebellious flesh, you can kind of confront, hopefully lovingly and truthfully, you can kind of confront and say, "Hey, let me help you like get this yuck out of your life, right? And let's look to Jesus together and let's figure out how you can surrender this to Him and and, and walk in freedom from that, right?" Um, so it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's, ob- it's more obvious. But rebel- religious flesh is different. It, it looks wholesome on the outside. Um, it looks moral and moralistic. It, it um, breeds sort of a brand of, of, of Christians that uh, thinks that in some way, even if they wouldn't articulate it this way, God must be pretty proud of them because of something they do or the way that they live, right? And so it's works-based righteousness even if we know it's not works-based righteousness in terms of our salvation, uh, the flesh operates in works-based righteousness often in terms of our sanctification and our discipleship. And we're, we wouldn't say it, but we think we're a little bit better than those people, uh, right? And so we struggle with that. And um, so how do we nurture a culture of grace in an age of legalism and self-righteousness, right? Not just in the church, although it's, there's plenty of that here, but we live in a culture, right, that is that is filled with self-righteousness. Um, I don't, res- you know, if I don't like what you, you, uh, say, I'm going to cancel you. You don't like what I say. You're a hater. Um, there's, there's just this sort of, it's so black and white for some people, right? In a world that's become so morally relativistic, there are black and there's a black and whiteness simultaneously happening that causes you to go, look, if you believe in freedom of speech and free thought and, and, and open dialogue, that's under assault right now, right? And, and, and people want to line everybody up into categories. And if you don't agree with me, you're in this category. And if you do agree with So again, all of that, I think I'm preaching to the choir here on that. But how do we nurture a culture of grace in this age of legalism and self-righteousness and in an age where everybody has a megaphone to spew it out called social media, right? Um, so a couple of things that, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say a few a few things that we that that I've seen play out here at Valley that I feel like we've made a ton of I've made a ton of mistakes we've made a ton of mistakes, um, and I'm happy to talk about those too, uh, if you force me to. But um, but the uh, some of the things that we've seen God do do work really powerfully through a um, couple of things. Number one is we've tried to teach and model Scripture um, contextually. And what I mean by that is that we live in an age where people, I think because um, evangelicals in particular were lovers of the word of God, and rightly so, and we highly esteem the word of God, and rightly so, we, um, we have a, a mindset that is perpetuated in our movement that says, if it's in the Bible, it's, it's God's word, so... I believe it, and that settles it. Sort of that bumper sticker mentality. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's great. I, I believe that, by the way, just so we're all, so we know full transparency, I believe in inerrancy. I believe in authority. I believe in infallibility. I believe that Genesis to Revelation is the complete word of God, and it's everything that we need for life and godliness. I, I am 100% high, 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 high view of Scripture. Um, but what I, when I say we, we try to teach and model the Scripture contextually is is just because teaching people that just because the, the word of God says it doesn't mean it's saying it d- 
directly to you, or at least not yet. In other words, we have to pro- help people process through a system of interpretation so that we don't just pull things out of context. I mean, because cults do this all the time, right? They pull things out of context. And so one of the ways that we've seen, we've really, I've really tried to lead in this and to focus on this is let's help people really have a Christocentric view. And that's kind of the next point of, I want to bring out, but um, really the, the greatest event or the greatest discipleship tool, or I think contextual tool that we can give in terms of discipling people in the word is to grasp the heart of the new covenant, right? Uh, if we, if we teach people to see the Bible as yes, everything in the Bible was written for me, but not everything in the Bible was written to me so that people don't treat the Bible as this sort of magic book that they open and, you know, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to point to this today and the Holy Spirit's going to speak something sort of esoterically to me. It's not that God can, God can do whatever he wants. He can speak however he wants to people through his word, but it's so, we just live in this sloppiness of, of whatever it sort of feels like the, the word says to me today. And that's just such a dangerous place to live. So what we've tried to do is get people to understand their place in God's unfolding story. Yes, Leviticus is the word of God and it's relevant and it's powerful in its context of the unfolding storyline. At the same time, Leviticus is not nearly as relevant to you as Ephesians. And it's okay to say that. And it's okay to help people understand that. It's not as relevant to your daily life. In other words, it's relevant to the story. It's the word of God equally, but helping people understand that there are scriptures called the new covenant letters, for example. And I'm not, I'm by no means a hyper dispensationalist or, you know, people take that in a weird direction. We've got people that's only the letters of Paul are, you know, applicable to the church. I mean, you could take this in a very unhealthy direction. It's not what I'm advocating, but, but we have to, teach people what does it mean to live under a new and better covenant you know what does it mean to to not be under law and legalism um how do we respect and esteem the law um but also keep the law in its rightful place which is uh you know i always like to say the law is a perfect diagnostic tool but it's a lousy discipleship tool um because it can never empower us to actually accomplish that which it demands of us and that's why we need this new and better way and so that's one thought I want to throw out there. We can unpack this more, by the way, as we fight over it, uh, what the heresy I'm sharing uh, in a moment. Um, secondly, teach, the, teach and model the scripture Christocentrically, right? Um, for decades, we've, I think we've taught the scriptures, and I grew up in the church. In, I love the church, and, and I've learned a lot from the foundation of the little charismatic church that I grew up in as a kid. And I learned a lot when I swapped, swooped over to the other end and went to Bible college at a conservative Baptist uh, Bible college. And I, you know, I, so I've got this sort of Heinz, and I'm so grateful for the different elements that I've, that God has given me. Um, but one thing I think Tim Keller says it well, he says that the American church is suffering from a crisis that he calls Mot, of, of Mott's preaching, M-O-T-S. He calls it moral of the story preaching. So we've handled the scriptures rather than Christocentrically teaching people that the, the surprise ending is Jesus Christ. And that's what everything is pointing to. And to, to, to teach scripture that way, he's saying we, we uh, typically are more prone to, you know, teach David and Goliath from the standpoint of, what are the five Goliaths in your life that you need to, you know, confront and tear? And it was just sort of, and when the story of David and Goliath, maybe it's not about being more like David. Maybe the point is that we already are like David. We have a lot of strengths. We have some embarrassing weaknesses, but we need a greater David. Um, maybe that's the, the, the point that we need to, you know, uh, or, and, and so rather than, you know, five happy hops to a healthy marriage and seven principles for financial freedom and all th- th- that kind of stuff that we typically hear in evangelical preaching, maybe we should get back to um, everything points to Jesus. And yeah, the, the scripture has some good advice, but we're not here ultimately to preach good advice. The, the law was great advice and the people sucked at keeping it right. Like the law was the best advice you could ever get and it. And, and people plunged into ruin because, um, they needed a Messiah and they needed a savior. So hopefully that makes sense. And then teach and model the scripture courageously would be that the next thought, you know, to not apologize, um, for preaching and modeling grace. Um, I believe that the, the core of the gospel is grace. And when you're big on grace and when you're proclaiming the radicality of God's grace in your preaching and in your discipleship strategies and all of that, you're going to get falsely accused from people in other 
Christian communities. Um, you're going to get falsely accused of being soft on sin, uh, of not respecting the Old Testament enough, of not, you know, of somehow disrespecting or belittling God's law. You're going to get that. And um, you, there's going to be those storms to weather. And I, I think I think we need to be able to say, you know what, I, I, I don't agree that with your assessment of me, maybe you should listen to a little bit of my, my, what I'm actually saying instead of someone's, you know, uh, uh, interpretation of what I'm saying. But, um, but I think we have to remember that we're, we, we can't, let's stop apologizing for preaching and modeling grace. Discipleship is messy. It's always going to be messy. And if our church cares more about, uh, sin than we care about sinners, um, then we are a laboratory for legalism. Okay, if we care more about sin than we care about sinners, we're a laboratory for legalism, and uh, and we, we we begin to to shape, we we try to shape people in their discipleship process with shame and fear and manipulation. And so, um, one of the things, you know, some of the come on in, if you're, oh, you're good. This is the cultivating a culture of grace, the shape, the religiosity one. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no. He's like, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so, you know, let's, do, let's, let's understand that um, we, we don't put new covenant believers under old covenant paradigms, right? Um, we preach the Old Testament as part of, of the story, but not necessarily uh, the ultimate solution. Jesus is the solution. It's the Old Testament is, you know, when I, when I became more aware of grace and, and more aware of the power of the new covenant, my respect and admiration and love for the Old Testament didn't go down. It went up because I started to see the Old Testament through the lens of the finished work of Christ and everything that it was pointing to. And I began to read, instead of reading David's Psalms where he would say, create in me a clean heart, oh God, I, I started to realize he was, he was crying out for what I have in the New Testament. I've been given the new heart, right? I've been given the heart, my, God has taken my heart of stone and replaced it with his heart of flesh that's soft toward the things that he cares about. I don't, I have the flesh. And so there's always that battle, right? Between walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. But, but my heart is new and, and I don't have to pray, create in me a clean heart. The whole reason I feel crappy when I sin is because I have a clean heart. And when I, when I sin, I'm not walking in alignment with my true identity. It's like, duh, we need to teach people that, um, not shape up, try harder, do better. We need to teach people that you are, that God has already done a work, whether it's not about how you feel every morning when you wake up at, and, and go about your day. It's, it, are we walking by faith in what God says is true of us? Um, you are a new creation. What does that mean? It means that our old man was crucified with Christ and we have been raised to new life in him, Right. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's the, that is to me the, the, the essence of Christian discipleship, uh, the foundation for it, uh, Galatians 2.20. So um, let's disciple people from that fundamental conviction of their identity in Christ. Let's disciple people from a fundamental conviction of Christ in me, the hope of glory that the Christian life, Michael's probably remembers me saying this years ago, but the Christian life is not a difficult life to live. It's an impossible life to live. Um, so welcome aboard, right? Uh, you can't do it, but Jesus can in you and through you. Um, and so that's what is so unique about this gospel of grace. It's actually not a lowering of the standard. Like under the law, I'm told don't commit adultery. Okay, like bare minimum sort of duh, you know, under the new covenant of grace, I'm told, love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, which standard is higher? Like, I look at that and I go, I can't do that. And, and, and for years I struggled with that, like just a sense of failure. Like I can't, how am I, well, I can't do that until it finally dawned on me that Jesus was trying to get me to see that that's okay that I admit that. In fact, he wants me to admit that because it forces me into a, a state of utter dependence upon him for these things that I just have no natural capacity to do. And so the Christian life is a, is a supernatural life. It, and, I, and not super, I mean, I grew up charismatic. I'm all for, you know, I, I believe in the gifts of the spirit, all that. I'm, but I'm, I'm, you know, we, we have turned 
the supernatural into like whatever snap crackles and pops in whatever atmosphere we can create to, to pump people up and get them excited, right? But the supernatural is the day-to-day lifestyle of radical dependence upon Jesus, right? And that's the, that's the life of grace. And so, um, and, and, and one last thing I'll say here is, uh, you know, let's disciple people from a fundamental conviction of becoming the person that Christ already says they are. Right. Rather than a discipleship model of, hey, do more, try harder, become something that you're not. Right. If we if we go to Romans 12, one and two, which is one of, another one of my favorite discipleship foundations. And we think about what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Um, that that idea of metamorphosis. And, you know, most of us know as Christian leaders that that idea of, of metamorphosis and the idea of like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, that caterpillar is infused with butterfly DNA, right? From the moment it was conceived. Um, it's not yet flying and cruising through the air, but it's fully a butterfly on the inside. And that cocooning process and that maturity process happens supernaturally, naturally, supernaturally, um, to the point that that becomes, that they begin expressing themselves as a, as a different creature. And so I think we have to help people understand that Christianity is not sin management. Christianity is not behavior modification. Christianity is not do more, try harder. And, 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 uh, with enough spiritual disciplines in your life, you'll finally get there. Not against spiritual discipline. I'm just, hopefully you hear my heart in this is that we need to teach people to become outwardly what they already are inwardly. And that takes a that that takes a rising level of faith for me on my worst day, in my worst moment, when I've said something that I'm ashamed of, or when I've treated someone in a way that I I was completely outside the character of Christ. In my worst moment, to be able to say, "Yeah, I, there's a, there's this godly sorrow in me that's bringing repentance," but the reason for that is because that's not who I am. Um, the reason I feel so sorrowful over that attitude, that action, that word, that behavior, whatever is because I'm a new creation and it's no longer fitting for me, right? Sin is no longer fitting for me, which is precisely why we feel bad when we aren't walking in alignment with the spirit. So these are just thoughts. I know they aren't, they sort of more, uh, I'm trying to open a discussion more than you have all the answers, but I want to stop there because I've said a lot and just kind of open it up to like some questions of, you know, how have you seen legalism at work in your own life? And in your own ministry, um, how have you seen grace make messes in your life and ministry? And why are these messes better than the messes that are caused by legalism? Because both are going to cause messes. Um, but I believe grace-based messes are holy, redemptive, God-ordained. Legalistic messages are, in my opinion, fleshly, satanic. Um, it's like the two people in the story of the prodigal son, right? We, again, we're always focusing on rescuing the, the rebellious flesh, the, rescuing the, the prodigal who's off living in rebellion, but we're not realizing that there's a prodigal living right in the father's house who thinks that the, the, the father is being unfair to him because he's blessing the rebellious one when 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 the other kids minded all his P's and Q's and, and he's just as lost as the kid out in rebellion, but he's lost in religion. He's lost in self-righteousness. And so anyway, let me throw that out there. How how have you seen legalism at work in your life and ministry? Fun conversation, right? But hopefully we can be transparent enough to be honest. Yeah. I think that um, reflecting, I idolize or look for a formula mm-hmm. or a strategy. Yeah. And I think that that's a manifestation of legalism. Okay. Of thinking if I can just get the right game plan or the right um, yeah. order of service, the right yeah. like flow in a sermon or whatever, it's going to yield the right yeah. result. But I think that that yeah. on some level can be a manifestation of legalism. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, totally. Anything that I said, spark a like. Ah, I'm not sure about that, or could you clarify that, or say, yeah, yeah, I yeah, totally agree yeah. With you. But thinking of you know, the more I learned about the Bible and yeah, about Christ, I, 
how did Jesus treat sinners compared to the Pharisees? Way different. Totally. And, and so much grace for sinners and totally. um, such a heart for them. And boy, he did not hold back against the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he was tough. Right. And I think that kind of is the message that you're kind of giving yeah. that um, the legalism just, they took it way beyond the law. Yeah. And uh, so I try to think about, am I, am I sticking to scripture or am I taking something further? Right. And, uh, right. So, Right. Yeah. So true. I, I agree with you. Like Matthew 23, when he calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead oh, men's bones yeah. and, you know, the inside of the cup is filthy and the outside of the cup is clean. And, and when he says, you know, you bind up burdens on people's backs and turn them into twice the sons of hell that you are. And like, this is like not your friendly neighborhood, Jesus, right? This is like, whoa, you know, but, but who's he talking to? You're exactly right. He's talking to self-righteous people who were making other people, were trying to make other people, other people into their self-righteousness, you know? Um, so interesting, but yet with every, every case that I, that I can think of, and I've read through the gospels many times, every case that I can think of where a broken person, uh, came to Jesus or was come upon by Jesus and just had nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to, they always left with their head high having encountered Jesus, you know? And for some reason, I, I, I get that there's been a backlash towards some of the um, sort of megachurch uh, sort of feel-good, seeker-sensitive Christianity that sort of rose in the 80s and 90s. There's been a backlash, and in some sense, rightly so, and I'm, I'm grateful for, for, for a lot of it in terms of bringing us back to more of a missional <coughs> mindset, and so that's been, been needed. But I also think that um, I was just saying, mentioning this in one of our services yesterday, that there's no, there's, you know, people who encounter Jesus, who come to Jesus humbly, encounter Jesus and, and walk away from that encounter should have their heads lifted high. Like there's, we're not here to spank people at church. Uh, we're not here to shame people at church, right? And a lot of people come to church feeling like, man, if I haven't, I've had conversations with people like this who said, man, I, I agree with your message. I love it. But, you know, I want you to, to challenge me. I don't want you to preach easy believism. And I go, well, if grace is easy believism, why are you having such a hard time believing it? Like, like the hardest thing you'll ever believe is grace. Legalism is easy to believe. Legalism is easy believism, right? It's easy to believe that God's at least mildly ticked off with you at some point throughout your day. It's easy to believe that you're going to at least pay something for your sins. It's easy to believe that, uh, you know, you've got to do something, some sort of penance to get back into right standing with God. It's easy to believe that if you miss some confess, unconfessed sin, that, you know, those are, those are the things that just feed the religious nature of the flesh. What's excruciatingly difficult to believe are the words, it is finished. That's hard to believe. Thanks, guys, for, for uh, that, those contributions. Sorry, I went off there for a second. Go ahead. I just yeah. reflecting. Uh, yeah. What, what I find challenging, so in our context, I'm, I'm the lead pastor and teacher. And yeah. So we're going through Hebrews. Okay. And yesterday, Hebrews awesome. 8, there's a new, better covenant. Yeah. You know. All this. That word obsolete, that scary word obsolete. Yeah. Word. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, anyway, what I, what's challenging personally is, like, I get the benefit of being in, in the text all week. Yeah, and, right. Know, anyway. And then there's people that only come once a quarter or less, <laughs> right, whatever. Yeah. And I'm thinking of a situation where someone's not living in light of who they are. Mm-hmm. If indeed mm-hmm. they are born again, right, 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 right. Knows, but and 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 I'm trying to have a conversation with this person, and, and they're reacting to that based on trauma, church stuff from when they were a kid, mm-hmm. and hurts, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, these walls are coming up as if we're doing the same thing, and I don't think we are. Mm. Yeah. Although again, I, I could get it wrong, yeah. and I could keep, anyway. Yeah. It's just it's hard. Like it is hard. I want to say you were here all more often than once a quarter <laughs> and and heard like, like no yeah i don't know just yeah. it's just a challenge it's messy totally it, yeah totally um i, I empathize greatly <laughs> with you and i, I guess um, in, I, in full confession it's this is good because i i found myself recently like ah, 
Yeah. A little bit. Like yeah. I tried and tried and tried. And, and at some point, you yeah. can't. Sure. You know, pull someone kicking and screaming. But, but grace doesn't, you know, stop. Yeah. From the Lord. And um, so for ministers of grace, you know, I want to I want to be sure to continue to. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So, like, I had made, I had taken a stand, uh, you know, not right when COVID happened, but like a few months into it, I was in a place where I felt like some of the lockdowns were in our area based on our numbers and our county and all that. I know places are all different geographically, but I felt like there were some businesses, business owners in our church and people that I knew in the community that were suffering unduly and, and they were more than willing to reopen safely and they had their own protocols in place and all that. And they, they were just not you know, how does a restaurant go from fully functioning to curbside only for, you know, for months on end with no end in sight. And so I had utilized some of my own, I just saw this as a, as a, as an issue of injustice. And I used some of my, uh, influential equity in the community to, to try to just speak up on behalf of small, like, let's get these people open. Like they, they can do this well, you know, and they can do it properly. And, and the vast majority of people supported what I was trying to say, but, you know, even for saying something like, I didn't think that was super highly controversial. And yet I just had like people take these firing arrows in from the community telling you don't care about you know, ICU numbers and you don't care about grandma getting sick and dying and you just, all you care about is people's money. And I'm like, well, I, I don't care about money, but I do care about people being able to like pay their bills and like, you know, like why is that so controversial, right? Like, um, and so that's one of those things where we're living in this time where there's on top of all of the, 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 the pastoral stuff that's super common, like you just talked about where we're just, struggling with people that come once a quarter or whatever, and they're, they're not understanding what we're saying. Um, we have that, but then on top of it, there's this, this other layer where we just live in this hypersensitive social media soundbite driven age, where if you say anything, you're, you're under attack from someone, you know, and it's like, man, it, but I think over time and hopefully the, the, where I, hopefully this conversation will go and encourage, it will encourage all of us is that over time it's, if we weather those storms by the grace of God, um, it's, it's worth it. I've had people who left Valley six, eight, ten years ago because they said, oh, all you ever do is talk about grace. And they're back now. I'm not, this is not a see I told you so or anything, but they're back now because they're like, oh, we get it now. Um, we got beat up in these other places and we thought we were getting good teaching, but what we were getting was a, a very carnally motivated shame-induced um, version of discipleship that just sort of left us either Pharisees or broken and failures, and we didn't know where to go. And, some, and, and so we found ourselves hiding. We found ourselves projecting something that we weren't, and it's so good to be back. And so when those stories happen, uh, just it's like, thank you, God, that I didn't give up on this when people shot me down for it. Um, because I believe, again, grace isn't the only thing that the Bible teaches, but it is the heart of the gospel. I mean, Muslims believe in a holy God and a loving God based on their understanding and a, and a just God and an all-powerful God. Christianity is the only God that has a God of grace. I mean, grace is unique to Christianity. That's like, without grace, we have no Christianity. Like it's not Christianity, right? It's something else. Um, but grace is the crux and, uh, grace is the, you know, if God is love, the I always say, if God is love, the supreme manifestation of his love is grace. Um, so what else, you know, what, what are we struggling? Yeah. No, I want to thank you. This has been great. Um, I've been thinking about repentance a lot recently yeah. and just like, how we want to say like repentance is your duty to turn from sin. Right? Mm, it's yeah. like it's a very like you need to do this and not this sort yeah. of idea. But really, repentance is just stepping into the grace of which Christ provides for us. Yeah, right. It's like it's totally. turning into Christ's better is better than yeah. like ours, which is right. like, it's so freeing because like so much. Even when we think about like good, bad and everything else in our world. Like, yeah, we should do this, shouldn't do this. It's like, hold on. So much of that is based in shame and yeah. guilt. And right. a lot of that masks itself like within the church 
that it's like, oh, if we just go and sit on a Sunday or like even our everyday life and just rest in what Christ has done mm-hmm. and let that free us, Absolutely. then naturally, like he's the one who's going to turn us from sin because we right. don't have that power without Absolutely. the spirit in general. So I think like it's just been super refreshing to like hear your talk. And like I had a Sunday professor who was like, uh, you know, we often think Sunday service is about doing. So mm-hmm. we go... We have to learn how to have this boom, 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 study the word, yeah. worship the correct way, whatever it may be, instead of like, what does it look like to just rest? Rest yeah. in what Christ has done, rest in the word speaking over you, rest yeah. in his finished work, and letting that start to transform so good. your life. And there's such a different paradigm switch. In so that. good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's interesting that Hebrews 4, you guys are in Hebrews. Hebrews 4 talks about struggle to enter into his rest. And it's it, it, it makes me wonder, and I've reflected on this a lot. I preached through Hebrews a few, couple years ago, and it was awesome, and I just loved it. I, I want to go back again soon, uh, you know, just to do it again. But um, Hebrews 4, struggle to enter into his rest. I wonder if the one of the toughest things we'll ever quote-unquote do is rest. Um, in the finished work of Christ, right? That's the invitation to come boldly before his throne of grace and rest. That's the invitation of Hebrews uh, 4, right? And um, you're so right, man. It's just, uh, it's, it's so counterintuitive. When Jesus gets to John 15 and he's about ready to introduce, he ju- he's just introduced, you know, the new covenant at the uh, Lord's Supper. And then he turns to the vineyards and he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. What he's, he's, he's actually, the Old Testament Jewish idea of discipleship was you'd come underneath the master and you'd, see, you'd watch what the master did and how the master worked and, 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 and how he lived or she, and then you would try to imitate them. That was the discipleship model. Jesus flips it on his head for the new covenant. And he says, no, it's not about you trying to be like the master. It's about a living, allowing the master to live through you. Like a branch doesn't produce jack squat. The vine produces fruit and we just get to bear the fruit, right? And so if we, so if we could help people make that paradigm shift in their process of discipleship, gosh, and, and see themselves as fruit bearers instead of fruit producers, we don't produce anything. Like I can't do, I can do nothing. Like Jesus said it in that passage. Apart from me, you can do jack squat, right? That's the message. And so, um, yeah, really good. So that's the, the, I believe that, again, I believe that, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I believe that John 15 is the, the beginning of, of Christ turning old covenant discipleship on its head and saying, Hey, I'm introducing you to a new and better way through this vine and branch scenario. And then all of Paul and the other apostles, they're teaching us, um, what it, what it means to trust Christ for this fruit in our lives, you know? So, yeah, it's good. Anything else? Um, you guys, you know, on, oops, this quit on me here. I wanted to, anything else come to mind in terms of, uh, you know, how have you seen, have you seen grace? I guess the first question was, how have you seen legalism work in your life and ministry? Secondly, how have you seen grace make messes in your life and ministry? How has grace made a mess? I mean, have you had to, have you, have you done something or operated in such a way where you were like, man, I treated someone with grace and something blew up in my face. And then you sort of wrestled with that. Like, should I have been more hardcore? Should I have been more, should I have been a jerk? Should I, you know, whatever. Um, you felt burned. Maybe a little bit uh, what you were describing, <laughs> you know, earlier. For me, it might be, might be a combination of both in okay. a weird way the legalism and grace like feeling like it burns me so okay uh of the, so we're small church like a couple pastors and uh so like i do a lot of things one of the things i do is youth ministry so um did you say youth ministry, youth ministry okay yeah, yeah cool so god bless you when, so like i went from like a church that had a lot of churched kids, which had their own frustrations and own, own yeah. you know, problems and 
especially since my ministry ended up being more and more mixed yeah. and people had problems with that and so like got really frustrated in that mindset but um, to moving to a church that had almost no church to kids mm-hmm. almost none mm-hmm. and so youth ministry looks obviously way different and so I struggled for a long time just being like you know, like I'm watering thorns. Like, that's what I felt like. And, uh, like, sowing seeds in the thorns. Mm. And I would come home and, like, like, honestly, like, just so hard. Mm. And, uh, and to, for me, like, like, my wife would remind me, it's like, well, these are the people that God's put in your life, you know. So I'm crying because it's like, it's just so difficult sometimes. And, uh, and so it's like my own legalism in a lot of ways, like it's in the way. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah. Like who am I to call people thorns? Yeah. You know, or seeds in the thorns rather. Yeah. But then at the same time, like a lot of it with grace, like burns me. So. Yeah. That's like where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is like, I mean, it's, it's no, the great part is like, for me, it's like no point of contention within like the, like elders or leadership, like they're all insanely supportive and like they know (laughs) the kind of people that come into our church and like all that kind of stuff. But it's just like, it's just so different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Thanks for sharing, man. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, you know, uh, other than thank you for sharing. And, and, and the one encouragement is that I'm pretty sure if my youth pastor were alive, he tragically passed away in his early 40s. But if my youth pastor were alive today, he would say that I was uh, one of those thorns that uh, is in your ministry. And I can say unequivocally, because I was raised in in a, in a religious atmosphere that had a ton of hip, hypocrisy and dysfunction and just a lot of disillusionment for me. And this, um, and so my, that was where I came from. My relationship with God is like, if God exists, he doesn't care about my family because we're so jacked up. And, and so I was a lot of anger. And, and it, so I was one of those thorns. And my youth pastor was the first person in my life. Obviously, I thankful for the things my parents tried to do, even in the midst of their dysfunction as they were taking on this new Christian life. But, um, but my youth pastor was the first one who loved me. My parents loved me unconditionally. Don't get me wrong, but you know what I'm saying? Who just made me feel the sense of Christ. Like, Hey, you're welcome here. I tested him first. You know, I, he earned, he earned the right to be heard in my life. And then eventually he spoke some truth into my life that changed my life. And so I'm just encouraging you with that. Because I don't know who that person is in your ministry, but he or she is in the midst of that group. So percent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. But I just mean the person who's yeah, going to come out and right, and do totally. and and God's going to transform their life is is in the midst of that group. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I was the, I was a church kid. When yeah. I was, you know, yeah, going to church, and so like for seven years, like ministering to church kids, like that made sense. Like I understood their struggle. Like yeah. I understood the parents, yeah. you know, yeah. as frustrating as yeah. they were. Like yeah. I was one of those kids. Yeah. Like, and so at the, and then, but then at the same time, like we ran the ministry in the way that like kids from the community that were not believers were welcomed into the, felt welcomed into the church and, and like the youth ministry, uh, you know, became heathens in a lot of way to like for real yeah. to the to the church parents and church kids and and a lot of them struggled yeah with that even though like we were pretty good at controlling behaviors yeah. like it's like we had like I mean we had I had parents I felt like I was on the grace side of all this and like they were on the legalism <laughs> yeah. side whereas like. We had kids that would share about how, you know, dad was threatening mom with a knife. Like that kind of stuff. Like heavy, heavy stuff. And parents would complain to me about that. And I'd be like, what? 
is this world? Like, yeah, so your yeah, kid is yeah, getting yeah. exposed to the fact that, yeah. like, other kids have it pretty terribly, and maybe that maybe yeah. his you know church yeah. parents aren't so bad after yeah. all. Like, yeah. like, what are you complaining about? <laughs> right. It's like it's like yeah, these are real stories, and like these are yeah. real kids, and like it might be traumatic for your kid who's hearing this yeah. story. But I'm sorry, yeah. like the other yeah. kid has a little more of a yeah. traumatic life, yeah. and so like. Like that I, part frustrated me. Yeah. Like, like on the other end, it's like, well, now like I'm the legalist. Who's, like, these kids are, you know, a bunch of yeah, hoodlums. You know, yeah. Like, I, I remember a conversation we had, Michael, back when you were leading worship. You were a high school student, and you were you were you, you were leading worship, and you were frustrated because a lot of the not, the unchurched kids or whatever were not paying attention. They weren't engaging. You had a heart for worship, still do to this day, and. Uh, and you were, go- I remember we sat down and you were like, man, I just don't even feel like it's worth it. Like, it's just, um, you know, I'm, I'm up there giving my all and these people are coming in and half of them are like, you know, on their phone or not, you know, phones were like new back then. It was like their Blackberry. <laughs> yeah. Their, their, their flip phone, you know, or whatever. Um, but, uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, and I remember wrestling through that with you and like, man, it's always going to be a, uh, a struggle. And sometimes church kids are in, in certain ways, church kids are, are more disruptive more and, and more lost than, than, than the rebels, you know? So, um, yeah. Um, anybody else? Yeah. This is a kind of a thought. Um, I've had some conflict with other Christians and yeah. thankfully not at so much. It's like, yeah. thankful for, for being there. Um, just, just stay a while. That, that'll happen. <laughs> but you know, I've never come across some Christians that really yeah. embraced um, the kind of Christian doctrine, you know. And I thinking about maybe grace could be taken too far. Mm. And if I yeah. have a conflict with them, it's making me feel like maybe I'm a legalist. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But I think there's there's got to be a balance somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. Um, because, oh, I'm uh, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, uh, yeah. So I, I guess you're familiar with that, with that doctrine, where um, you pretty much live uh, a, a, yeah. a secular life and feel like, well, you know, I'm saved. I can live any way I want, and yeah. um, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. But there, there are Christians that believe that. Yeah. So. And, well, yeah. So I. I know that that's a concern, and I would say that there maybe are a few out there who profess, like who at least intellectually truly understand Jesus died for me as my Savior. I place my faith in Him, but I have no care to, to to live like it. You know, in those cases, I would I would probably question. I'm not. I can't judge their heart, but I would question: Did they do they understand the gospel, and are they genuinely saved? Not here to make that pronouncement for sure because only god knows but more often than not i think that what you're describing and forgive me if, if this has been real prominent in your life but in my experience i think a lot of that is a is a fear that um that it's real but i'm not sure that it actually equates quite as dramatically in the real world as we fear it does in the sense that paul right in romans he he asked and answered the question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, right? right so, exactly. Because yeah. that was a big fear that people were going to take his message. I mean, everything he says in chapters three through five is like radical, you know, freedom from the law and, and radical grace. And, you know, that, that we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and we are justified and we've got this new Adam, you know, on our side, you know, and all of this. And then he says, you know, he talks about, you know, we're great. We're sin abounded. Grace abounded all the more. And then he goes, Hey, it's almost like he realizes, I know what some of you are thinking. Mm-hmm. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We, it, chapter six, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then, you know, he goes on. And by the time he gets to six fourteen, he says, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. And then he goes on to unpack that further in, you know, theologically and then practically from 12 on right in Romans. So he's, he's got this, He's Paul is addressing it head on. I think you're right to say that someone who just, you know, claims to be going to heaven and lives like hell, maybe they need to be confronted and say, do you really understand the gospel? But I also think more often than not, it's it's my opportunity and privilege as a believer, as a leader uh, to come alongside people and say, hey, I can't I'm going to take it face value that you believe the gospel. Let me help you understand not just what Christ did for you, 
but what Christ did to you. We're really good at preaching the gospel of what Christ did for us. But the other half of the gospel that we're not preaching is Christ crucified you and raised you to new life. So you're a new creature now. And what does that mean, right? What does that mean? And, and, and to help people. In, so rather than, and, and it could be different in different situations, but the vast majority of the time, I'm trying to come alongside people and help them understand what happened to them, not just what happened for them at the cross, but what happened to them. And then what does that mean that I'm a new creature, that I've got a, a new, you know, and, and, it, and yes, the flesh is still strong, but I think a lot of times, like, so you, you mentioned the word carnal Christian, right? A lot of people develop, develop that, theology, that idea and that pushback against carnal Christianity from 1 Corinthians, right? Because he says in 1 Corinthians 3, I wish I could address you as spiritual, but unfortunately you're carnal, right? But what he also says throughout 1 Corinthians is your saints, your beloved, you are going to heaven, he says, even those whose works amount to wood, hay, and stubble, they themselves will be saved as the one escaping through the flames. Like, so he's kind of using some serious language, but, he, 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 yeah, but he's never questioning their salvation. In the one book of the Bible that the word carnal Christian comes from, Paul never never questions the legitimacy of their salvation. He questions their behavior and he says, let me teach you who you are so that you can begin to live like it, right? But he never questions the security of their, of their salvation. And that's what so, that just blows my mind and I think should blow all of our minds is that grace opens itself up by definition, it's imbalanced, Grace is radically imbalanced. So you use, you use the word balance, and I think I understand what you mean, but when you really think about it, grace is radically imbalanced by definition, Thank, thankfully, in our favor, right? So, so, to, so to, to embrace a culture of grace and embrace a, uh, an actual expression, of, I'm gonna live as a grace-based person, I'm going to get burned. Grace will be abused at times. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's okay, but it's going to happen, and I need to be okay with that. I need to understand that, that people are going to um, abuse grace. If it wasn't open to the possibility of abuse, it wouldn't be grace. So my, my, my goal as a, as a discipler is not to come alongside and, and get someone to, to question the legitimacy of their salvation. If they truly, be, they truly express, hey, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that, you know, and everybody goes, oh yeah, but the demons believe. Well, read that passage carefully. The demons have not placed their faith in Christ as, as savior. <laughs> they believe that he died. They believe facts about him, but they, they haven't personally. If someone personally says, I believe Jesus died for me and I've placed my trust in him as savior, I gotta take that at face value. Even if they look like they're living completely contradictory to that. And my job is not to come, this is my, my opinion. My job is not to come alongside them and cause them to doubt their salvation. My job is to come alongside them and disciple them to begin to live from this new life in Christ, right? I hope that makes sense. In yeah, what, no, it what, does. And yeah. It's funny that you mentioned uh, First Corinthians because yeah. that's what they mentioned too. But yeah. if you read the whole book, it yeah. makes sense. You just yeah. can't take it out of context. You know? Right. It's, it's all put together. Right. So. Yeah. And actually, Paul ends First Corinthians by what? He says, he actually says that the power of sin is the law. Mm-hmm. So the worst thing we could do for people who are stuck in sin is put them under law. The law incites sin, right? The, the, Paul said in Romans 3 that there are two purposes for the law. To stop the mouth, to basically get us to say, shut up, guys. You, like, quit minimizing and justifying. To stop the mouth and to lead us to Christ. It's, our, it's that tutor, that schoolmaster that leads us to faith in Christ. And once the law completes its powerful work in our, of condemnation in our lives to, to get us to realize we need a savior, the, the, we, it's not that the law dies, but Paul says in Romans 7, we die to the law and we're married to another, right? So, yeah, so good. And thanks for dialoguing, <laughs> dialoguing through that with me. Yeah. I think how you explained it, but I really liked it about that, you know, I'm part of all the I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 30. And a lot of people who I knew who grew up in the church as believers, they're all these sinners, saved prayers. I'm like, 
Well, I'm a saint who sometimes yeah. sins. Yeah. I'm like, but they'll all... <laughs> you feel like a heretic, heretic saying that. And we all sit seated in the yeah. heavenly. It's like, this You're is right. who we are. Like, embracing that mm-hmm. divinity, I think, is such an important part. Grace, I see used as a term where they're talking more about salvation, but when you say it's living who God made us, right. you know, um, I just love the identity part is just yeah. something that we can grasp and look at who we are. We are saints. Yeah. We are seated here. We yeah. Are yeah. Like that. That's so good. Yeah. One illustration that a friend of mine, uh, he, he's a writes a lot of books and, and that's stuck with me. I mean, one of his first books is called the naked gospel. He, he writes about how, if, if I invited you over to my house and one, and you walk down my hallway to use the restroom, let's say, and you walk by two bedrooms and one bedroom is immaculate. It's the guest room and it's my, you know, we've kept it up and the bed's made and everything's in its place and it's welcoming and it's, and then the next bedroom is my office, he says, and it's got, you know, old printers on the floor and, and, you know, a trash can knocked over and it's disheveled and, and you had a wadded up piece of garbage or piece of paper which room would be more fitting to throw that, toss that into? Well, it's just a no-brainer. It's I'm going to toss that. And he was saying it's so powerful. If, if when people view themselves like the dirty room, that they're they're just sinners saved by grace rather than saints, clean, holy, um, then what's one more sin thrown on the pile, right? Um, if if I'm just a pile of garbage anyway, right? Uh, but if I'm clean, if I'm holy, if I'm righteous. If I'm perfected in Christ, um, then then that piece of garbage is unbefitting of that that clean and tidy room, that that, that temple that Christ has made me. Christ is not going to dwell inside of a of of a of a defiled temple, right? So um, these are great themes, you know, and I think we need to connect these dots for people in our preaching and in our teaching and our worship leading. Um, I'm always joking with Zach, our worship leader, you know, um, not joking really, but it does turn into joking, but how many songs these days, and there's some great songs, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining, but how many songs are like this dirty, rotten sinner, sort of, I'm sort of, I'm so bad, and I, you know, um, it's, is that real humility or is that false humility? I mean, is that biblical humility? I think, was it C.S. Lewis or somebody said, you know, that real biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So biblical humility is not, I'm a piece of trash. Um, biblical humility is, wow, I have a hard time believing it sometimes, but I was valuable enough to Jesus that he shed his blood for me. And gosh, that's humility, is seeing ourselves soberly, um, realistically, the way God sees us. And um, So, yeah. Well, good stuff, you guys. I don't want to believe, I think we got a little bit of time to transition. Uh, I think the next one's at 10.30. We are slated till 10.15, but I don't want to, unless you guys have uh, anything you want to um, continue on, I, you know, we can hang in here talk informally, whatever you guys think. I did bring something. This is a little devotional that a, a former staff member who planted a church in Davis um, and I kind of teamed up on it and wrote. It's just a little devotional. It's called 40 Days of Renewal. And uh, this is just something I wanted to give you guys um, in case it can be an encouragement. It's a devotional from a grace-based identity in Christ uh, identity in Christ perspective. And we did it as a series. Like, yeah, absolutely. We did it as a preaching series, like a seven week preaching series. And they're oh, married. They're going to share. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> That's good. Um, but it's basically what it is, is it's the, the whole idea of a Romans, a Romans 12, one kind of, uh, 12, two kind of paradigm. Um, and it, it's, uh, we just, it's a in-house self-produced, but we just, um, we basically, took seven different elements of life, faith, family, friends, uh, you know, things like that. And we, we wrote five devotionals on, on each of those that sort of ide- try, seek to identify what are some of the lies we believe and then what is the, and th- that some of them even sound right. They sound true. So, for example, if you turn to page, uh, well, just look at line number one, page 16, um, line number one, I must do my best and God's grace will make up the difference. That sounds right. I mean, it sounds okay, right? I must do my best. Of course I want to do my best for God. And then his grace will make up the difference. 
actually that's Mormonism. <laughs> that's not Christianity, right? Um, and we say, well, um, how about lie number two? I don't pray, read my Bible, go to church, give, give of myself enough to expect God's blessings. We talked about why that's a lie. Um, number three, if I'm a Christian, that means I'm a follower of Christ. Um, we talk about the difference of a, between a believer and a disciple, that there are people, that was the, that was the issue as I see it in the Corinthian church, that there were people who were on their way to heaven, but they weren't walking as disciples. Um, and lie number four, if I'm going through a trial in life, God must be punishing me or might be punishing me, right? Lie number five, God has blessed me so much that I owe him a life of service. That sounds right. You know, we even sing it all to, all to him I owe, right? And, and great song, by the way, I just not trying to be picky, but is that true? Do I owe God something? Because if I do, then what does that do to salvation as a gift? Have you ever given your children something and then said, you can keep this gift as long as you pay for it? <laughs> as long as you pay me back for it, right? I understand what we're getting at when we say that. We, we feel a sense of indebtedness. Sure, absolutely everything proper about that. But objectively, do we owe God something? If we owe him something, then salvation's not a gift, right? And so these are just ways to help people think through on their discipleship process, and all of myself included, um, you know, to sort of capture these subtle little lies that we sometimes tell ourselves and believe, and then to reframe them from a more grace-based, finished work perspective. Um, and so hopefully it can be a blessing uh, to you guys and as you think through it. But.